Get Lit. Welcome to Get Lit, the literary podcast where we, Steph and John, talk about famous works of literature and the people who wrote them. This week, we have a very special episode because we are recording live. I mean, not really like you guys aren't hearing it live, but we're recording from the Ernest Hemingway birth home in Oak Park, Illinois. This is part of our Get Lit Goes On tour. So we're recording today from Ernest Hemingway's sort of like the foyer in front of his staircase. So like little Ernest Hemingway ran up and down the stairs. Ernie. Ernie. um, That we are sitting near right now, which I think is very cool. So hopefully this episode might be imbued with his spirit. And we also, um, after we give a little brief summary of Hemingway's life, um, have our expert um, here from the Hemingway Foundation to talk about Ernest himself. So tonight, my imaginary friend John and I are going to be discussing Hemingway. Okay. Now, I'm not even living (laughs) or in the realm of reality anymore. You are real. Imaginary friends for young children are very real and oftentimes a great Influencer on their becoming people, probably. I read research. It's it's a movie. What? <laughs> what? Um, what is it? Uh, the one where the little emotions come to life. Oh, the emoji movie. No, no, no. Oh. Um, it's like you go inside this little girl's head and like yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and it's played by Amy Poehler and then sure. the sad person from The Office. Um. Oh my God. What is it? Voice. Mm, Despicable me. <laughs> the voices inside my own brain. <laughs> Insanity. The musical. Okay. We'll Google it. Um, and tonight, I bribed John um, with a Cheerio because that works for my chinchilla. So I figured it'd work for my imaginary friend, too. Yeah. All right. Marginal success. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you ate it. I did. <laughs> so here we go. Without uh, further ado, Ernest Miller. Hemingway, was born in Oak Park, Illinois, on July 21st, 1899. Um, He is the second of five children to parents Clarence and Grace Hemingway. Um, His father, Clarence, was a doctor, and his mother was a music teacher, opera singer. Um, Actually, very cool. So Grace Hemingway, um, before she was Grace Hemingway, went uh, and did have an audition for the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Um, She actually made it, you know, kind of that far after taking music lessons. Um, But ultimately, she had a, you know, eyesight issue, and it was really hard for her to be under the stage lights. So she forewent, foregoed, she forewent her opportunity to sing for the opera and um, married uh, Ernest's father and taught music lessons out of her home for the rest of her life. I feel like she, she was there. She almost yeah. made it. Well, she did make I, it. She made it for she herself. She made it. I, I, she I made guess. it for herself. Um, and that was all she really needed to do, I think, because she actually made like a ton of money in teaching music oh, lessons. Good, so, like, for, good her. for her. Doesn't matter. Um, so, Ernest had an older sister named Marceline. And a funny story about his upbringing. His mom really wanted twins. Obviously, Ernest was not a twin and Marceline was not a twin. Um, but since they were so close, I think they were a little more than a year apart in age. Um, he actually, She made Ernest dress. Kind of, they, they both had to dress kind of androgynously. So Ernest would wear dresses and Marceline would wear pants. And she gave them these like androgynous haircuts. And she actually held Marceline back a year in school so they could go into school in the same grade. Thus being 
twins. But why? I don't know. But like, how funny! How weird! (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) Ernest was a twin. Um, No, he wasn't. For his mother, he was. It was good enough for her. Um, So he grew up fishing and loving the outdoors. His father was a big outdoorsman, and they had um, a cabin in Michigan that they would go up to for the summers, and he learned how to, you know, kind of have this outdoorsy life. He grows up um, in Oak Park. Um, The house that we're recording in right now actually was his home until he was about six. Um, And then he lived at another house uh, down the street, effectively, on and off throughout his, until he was 20-ish. Um, And so in high school, he's a reporter for The Trapeze, which is his high school newspaper. He publishes a couple short stories um, in The Tabula, which is the school's literary magazine. He plays the cello. Wait, what? He plays the cello. Oh my gosh. He wasn't very good at it. Oh, never mind. (laughs) Um, And he uh, does track and field and like plays other sports and stuff. Um, So he graduates from high school and his dad is like, okay, you're done with this education thing, I can tell. Um, So rather than wanting to send his son off to join the military, which right around the time, uh, we're in World War I, and so it Mm. felt like, you know, if you had a young son, he should go to the military. But Ernest clearly didn't want to go to college. So his father actually called the Kansas City Star, which is a newspaper, um, to get his son a job. And it worked. Um, Ernest Hemingway was a cub reporter, which is basically like a young reporter and experienced. Um, And he was going to start that September. So he graduates high school. He goes to Michigan for the summer, hangs out, loves life. And then in September, he's off to the Kansas City Star to report. Um, So he actually hones a lot of his writing skills from working in editing and and his newspaper job, which I think is really interesting because when you read Hemingway, he's noted, I think, for his really sparse language. It's awesome to read, but I never thought about it from sort of a journalistic perspective. But in journalism, you need to get straight to the point, right? The idea being that like at any time the reader could stop. So your paragraphs like all kind of have to be the end of the story if a reader wanted them to be. You know, Vonnegut also had the same influence for his fiction. And I actually see a little bit of a similarity between the short, you know, succinct sort of style that they both have. Obviously different ways that they applied it, but I still think I I see the newspaper influence in both of them. I bet that's true. I haven't read enough Vonnegut to be able to distinguish that, but I believe you. I'm sure he's a great writer. Anywho, um, so Ernest really wants to join the war, um, but he has poor eyesight, so he can't. However... Inherited from his mother. I don't know what it was. I think he just needed glasses. Oh, got it. Anyway, so after he's worked at the paper for six months, he makes friends with another reporter, and the other reporter's like, dude, you know what we should totally do is drive ambulances, because you could apparently do that if you had bad eyesight, but you couldn't be in the war. So I don't... What? I know. He did that, though. Also, so, how old was he? Um, He's like 19 at the time. Wow. He's like quite young. Um, 
So he he and this other guy leave the newspaper and they join the military. And Ernest is an ambulance driver based in Milan, Italy. And he gets bored of that. He's like, I want more action. So he goes to the Austro-Italian border um, and he actually gets severely injured. This is sort of the first major injury of his life. He sustains quite a few. But this is the first one when a projectile from the Austrian side explodes in the trenches and sends a ton of shrapnel into his leg. So he survives. He's sent back to Milan to recover. But by the time he's done recovering, the war has ended. So he goes back to Oak Park. Um, He works a series of odd jobs. He publishes some more short stories. He does tutoring for this random rich woman who has a son with a, he can't walk. So the mom's like, can you be my friend, my friend, like my son's friend? And Ernest is like, sure. So he like tutors this young son and like, that's great. Um, Whoa. Yeah, I know. Kind of random. So in 1921, he marries a woman named Hadley Richardson. Her first name is Elizabeth, but they call her Hadley. Um, and his mom is really pleased about this because he she feels that he needs to ditch this sort of bohemian lifestyle. He never really settles down. Hmm. Um, and this hypothetically gives him roots. So um, they fall into poverty pretty quickly after they get married and all of Ernest's friends are like you should move to Paris because it's cheaper to live there that's a different time lol I know I just think like what's the solution to poverty like move across the world Paris it's fine um so they live in the Latin Quarter and he continues writing short stories um, and feels pretty successful in his writing at this point in time so he's in his early 20s um, and this is where you get those kind of romantic leanings of Ernest Hemingway in the lost generation with Fitzgerald and Gertrude Stein that's foreshadowing um, and other things like that so that's sort of the start of his his love of Paris and, and Paris's reciprocal love of him uh, he starts writing um, as a reporter and covers the war between Turkey and Greece for the New York Sun. Uh, but he's asked to cover the Lucerne Peace Conference. And on a train to Lyon, his suitcase with all of his writings gets stolen. <gasps> I don't know why he felt the need to bring literally all of his writings in a suitcase oh. to the conference. But he did. What? Oh why? My gosh. I don't know why he did that. Why did he I'm back like, up his hard drive? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> so, um, unfortunately, that also includes the carbon copies of his work. Oh, my God. And he's like, pee upset about that. So, um, he goes back to Paris. He's like, all of my work is gone. And Gertrude Stein's like, dude, go to Spain. There'll be stories there for you, which I think is kind of nice and romantic. So he goes to Spain, finds some stories, and then he goes back to Paris, and then they go, he and Hadley go to Canada, and his first son, um, John, who's actually called Jack, as was custom at the time for some strange reason, uh, Jack Hemingway is born there in 1923. Hmm. So Ernest is very young, has a child, and um, no work. So he returns to Paris and writes... But he and Hadley get divorced in 1927. The reason is because he falls in love with Pauline Pfeiffer and marries her later that year. Whoa. Kind of a bummer. That's Um, a quick turnaround. You know, let's make it, you know, let's make it efficient, just like his writing. 
That's not a good way to do marriage. Okay, so Pauline and Ernest go to Key West, which is another one of those places closely associated with Hemingway. And so in 1928 through about the 1950s, they live on and off in Key West. Um, A Farewell to Arms is published in 1929, and this is the novel that makes Hemingway financially independent, which is great. He can now write. He spends most of his time writing and that kind of stuff. Um, And it really puts him on the map in terms of literature and the literary world. Uh, So later throughout kind of the next whatever years of his life, he travels to Africa. He really likes safaris. He writes things. Um, And his divorce uh, in 1940 to Pauline results in him marrying another writer named Martha Gellhorn. And they set up shop in Cuba. And so this, I think, is like sort of like Hemingway is associated with Paris and Cuba, right? There's that documentary. And Key West. Right. But like, I feel like most people are going to jump to either Paris or Cuba first. Yeah. Um, so they set up shop in Cuba. World War II begins. And Hemingway actually volunteers his services and his fishing boat Uh, the Pilar, (laughs) and he works with the United States Naval Intelligence spotting German submarines in the Caribbean. So that's kind of a fun thing. Yeah. Um, (laughs) He does that in Cuba. Yeah, I saw a German sub today, no big deal. (laughs) Right home about it. Right home. Um, So he divorces Martha in 1945. Oh my gosh. And he marries his final wife, Mary Welsh. Most people Um, don't need that qualifier. No, but she got it. Yeah. So he and Mary get married, and she is a Time magazine correspondent, um, and they are married in 1946. They live in Venice very briefly, but move back to Cuba. Um, In 1952, The Old Man in the Sea is published, uh, which restores kind of Hemingway's literary stature and secures his place there. And later that year, in 19, well, I guess later that season cycle, in 1953, he wins the Pulitzer Prize in Literature. Hmm. Um, so really kind of solidifying his legitimacy, whatever you well, want to call it, as an author. Um, in January of 1954, uh, Hemingway goes to another safari and is actually reported dead after two airplane crashes in two days. Um, he what? survives the crashes, so it's not true. Like, he doesn't obviously die. Um, Wait, but he survives two plane crashes in two days. Yeah. Um, so he has severe internal and spinal injuries and a concussion. Um, and newspapers start to report his death, but, like, he isn't dead. So he reads some of the obituaries, and he was kind of pleased to note that they were favorable. That's a Tom Sawyer move right there. Right? Like, yes. <laughs> Oh, they wrote nice things about me. How cool. Um, So he does recover um, from his injuries, but uh, this will kind of, I think, mark maybe the downfall of his physical abilities is is these severe injuries. Um, In 1954, though, he wins the Nobel Prize in literature. He's only the fifth American writer to do so, which is pretty cool. Uh, He can't go to Sweden to accept the award because of his injuries. Um, and because he's not allowed on planes anymore, because he was two plane cl- crashes <laughs> in two days. But he lived, so but if anything, lives. maybe he is the one you want. I guess, yeah. Or maybe... Your plane will crash, but you'll survive it? Maybe. Okay. That's fine. Jury's out. 
So he, um, the revolution in Cuba is starting to ramp up. It's 1959, and he and Mary leave Cuba. During this time, kind of post his, his Cuban life, that his depression and alcoholism really take effect. Um, his last two years of his life are pretty awful. Um, he receives mental health treatment in Minnesota and spends some time in New York City, uh, but ultimately winds up in Ketchum, Idaho, which is where he and Mary lived. Um, and on July 2nd, 1961, he shoots himself in his home. Um, at the time, was ruled allegedly accidental. Uh, we find out later that it was indeed a suicide. And he is buried out in Idaho. He had a private service, private funeral service, um, Mary put together, and he's out there now. So you can go visit his gravesite there. Wow. Um, so that was a quick, very quick introduction. Hemingway obviously has a very rich and richly documented life. And to talk a little bit more about that, we would like to introduce our very special guest, Bob Glass, who has been um, one of the facilitators of the tours here. He's been a docent and leads people around to tell them about Hemingway's legacy here from the house. Um, so Bob Glass, thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate your expertise. Um, so I guess we would love to start with some questions if you've got got some answers of course <laughs> um, so our first question actually is about the home at large um, we would love to know a little bit about the mission of the Hemingway house um, and what got you personally interested in in Hemingway okay well I guess it's two questions yeah. <laughs> uh, the house itself uh, was in private hands and a group of English teachers and other important old Parkers realized that we were wasting the opportunity to honor Ernest Hemingway and so they founded the foundation with the goal of building a world-class museum and they did and it took years and it was wonderful and unfortunately that museum closed a couple of years ago and then somebody got the idea maybe we could buy one of the two houses he lived in. Um, so we decided, we, the foundation, I would say we, <laughs> um, decided to buy one of the two houses and restore it, mm -hmm. and we bought this house, and um, that was 1992, and the goal was to make it a living museum and make it look exactly like it looked when Ernie was here, because the house had been changed over the years, they dropped the ceilings, they um, actually started renting the upstairs, made it a separate apartment, um, None of the wallpaper, none of the carpeting, nothing was here that was here when Ernie was here, except the rose molding, which you may notice. Mm -hmm. And the fun part of that was they didn't know if that was here or not because they dropped the ceilings. <laughs> and so it was all covered. And when they tore down the ceilings, they said, oh, wow, is that great? And of course, it's in better shape than it would have been if they'd been open in the air because it was protected. Um, so this house went from 1992 to 2002, I'll say, as a uh, working museum. And finally, we had a party and said it's all restored. Mm -hmm. So I guess the goal of the house is just to have, like I say, a living museum that shows you exactly where Ernest Henry lived and, and how he lived. That's amazing. And so with that, and kind of having had this knowledge of his experience, what inspired you? Like, why was it Hemingway? Why not Fitzgerald or? That's a good question yeah. because mm -hmm. I'm kind of romantic. And so Fitzgerald mm -hmm. almost, almost won. <laughs> no, <laughs> almost I, was, um, I was in college um, <laughs> and I was majoring in English. So you have to do an independent project. And I had no idea what I wanted to do, so I picked Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald, who were pretty good friends. I mean, they loved each other, really. I'm from Oak Park, and Ooh. Ernest Hemingway was born in Oak Park. And so when I found out that the Hemingway house was, you know, being opened for tours, 
I was recruited and um, I immediately, oh, I was giving tours to Frank Lloyd Wright, who's also oh, an yeah, old punker, yeah. mm -hmm. and I immediately gave that up to do Hemingway. So I guess it just, it was sort of my destiny. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that's really kind of fun is, my grandfather was in real estate in Oak Park. Mm -hmm. For one year, he moved into a house at like 630 North Kenilworth, give or take. And on the corner, 600 Kenilworth, is where Ernest Hemingway lived in his mother's, you know, the new house. Mm -hmm. And um, my mother said, yeah, during that year, I played with the little girl from the house at the corner. And I figured my mother's birthday, she was way too young to be, you know, seeing Ernie or Marceline or anything like that. But Ernie had a young sister named Carol. Mm -hmm. And I'm, my God, my mother played with Carol Hemingway. I mean, that is just <laughs> so cool, you know? Yeah. Um, so that was part of it, but um, yeah. Well, Bob, it's clear that you love Hemingway and uh, have so much information about him and personal history, it sounds like, uh, from your family and the places that you've uh, traveled to learn more about him. But a lot of our listeners don't know very much about Hemingway at all. And so I was wondering, how would you characterize Hemingway as a person for someone who this might be their first time hearing the name? Well... Hemingway was a man of a wonderful memory, and he decided to be a writer, and he read voraciously. I mean, he literally, like he, when he went to Paris, well, after he got married, uh, he went to Sylvia Beach's bookstore, Shakespeare and Company, and he didn't have any money, and she had a lending library, and I don't know, he gave her a $40 deposit, and you walked out with a stack of books to read while you're skiing in Austria, and she said, <laughs> she said to er seriously, and she said to Ernie, um, don't worry about it. If you don't have the money, pay me later. And later on, when he wrote A Movable Feast, he said she was kinder to me than any other woman ever was. But my point was he read and read and read, and then his ambition was to write better than any of the people he read. And um, he wrote a few short stories and really wasn't getting too far. But then he wrote his first novel, um, The Sun Also Rises, and it it is considered the first modern novel if you consider like World War Two, mm -hmm. World War One is a cutting point you know the people that wrote since then um, Hemingway really revolutionized literature his style was different so even though Fitzgerald sold a lot of books they mm -hmm. said his writing was almost still you know the same writing with a different theme I mean he'd write about flappers or something you know so it was a modern Lifestyle. Can you elaborate but, on what you mean by by modern? What what made it? Modern? Uh, that's it's interesting. Um, the the thing about Hemingway and and it's not true through his whole career, but at the very beginning, um, well, first of all, he was always in the right place at the right time. So he had an introduction to um, Ezra Pound uh, when he got to Paris, and Ezra Pound said, "Get rid of the." the um, um, Ad, adverbs. Okay. So in a way, in a way, he took them out, and then he had a letter of introduction to Gertrude Stein, and she had art on her walls, and he um, learned a lot about artists, and he kind of compared writing and painting as, you know, similar creative processes, and he wanted to write the way Cezanne painted, if you can imagine. Oh. I can't quite imagine how you write like somebody paints, but he knew exactly what he meant, and I think that was because Cezanne's paintings were not a hundred percent exact they were sort of symbolic of things you know more like a I don't know you could fill in a little blank or whatever so Hemingway's style is basically considered very um, sparse where he had short sentences and didn't have well his rival for the for the um, 
Faulkner was the rival for the Nobel Prize, the two of them were the best writers in America at the time. And uh, he laughed and said, yeah, well, Hemingway never wrote a word that had sent anybody to the dictionary. <laughs> okay. And then he described it as iceberg. I don't know if you've heard that term. Mm -hmm. But basically what happened was an iceberg floats toward you and you see about one-eighth of the iceberg and seven-eighths of it is underwater. Well, Hemingway would write a story and then he would take out the things that he thought you could bring yourself to the story. And then you see the fun of Hemingway is you can read him at 20, 40, and you're 20 years old, 40 years old, 60 years old, and you have three different stories. Because <laughs> when you fill in the blanks, you're a different person and you fill them in differently. So I think that's one of the things about Hemingway is he's always new. Because mm -hmm. the more you change, the more Hemingway changes. I mean, the basic story's there, but mm -hmm. you're filling in the, the iceberg part. Which I think is great. So when I talk to my students about literature and, and kind of encourage them to do their reading and interpret things, I think that you've articulated maybe why people continue to read it is because it holds something special for them or it helps them maybe understand something about themselves. You know, when you read something once, um, then you go back to it maybe at a different point in your life and get something different out of it, you have an opportunity to reflect on how you've changed as a person too. And so I think that that's a great, maybe I'll make that a classroom poster this year, <laughs> is how to fill in the iceberg. With all of the knowledge that you have and with the history that you give, uh, what is your favorite or maybe one of your favorite stories about Hemingway, like an anecdote that you just really enjoy telling people on tour? This tour is sort of censor centered on the little boy. Mm -hmm. And so one of the fun stories I love is um, his grandfather uh, stayed home. He was trading railroad stocks in Chicago, and there was nobody to raise the kids because mom was working and dad was working. So grandfather stayed home to raise the grandchildren, and he would let them go out and play in the afternoon, and then he could do his thing, and they would call him in. And he always said, you know, you, you never come in until I call you, you know, don't barge in. Mm -hmm. And one day Ernie ran in the front door, Grandpa, Grandpa, and just saved a woman's life. And I thought that was a pretty, you know, audacious thing for him to do. And I thought, oh, but Grandfather's very gracious. And he said, well, what did you do, Ernie? You know, tell me about it. And Ernie says, oh, this lady gets up in her carriage. <clears throat> She's not moving, and, you know, the carriage is not going to be moving, so she doesn't pick up the reins. But at that time, Oak Park had one or two, you know, motor cars. And one of them went by and backfired, and the noise scared the horse, and the horse starts running. And by the time the lady turns to see what's happening, the reins are in the dirt. And so she's totally helpless to stop the horse or turn the horse. And so Hemingway pretends, or I shouldn't say it that, he runs out in the street, he says. Grandpa, I ran out in the street, and I ran, and I caught the horse, and I grabbed the reins, and I stopped the horse, and I handed him up to the lady, and I bowed and said, there you are, ma'am. And grandfather thought that was a great story, but of course his belief was it wasn't Ernie, which is true because dad had read the story out loud in a newspaper. <laughs> and the man who stopped the horse was probably 26 years old, you know, and very athletic. And so Ernie hears his story and within 10 days he's telling his grandfather he's the one that did it. So grandfather was really pretty sharp and he goes to his daughter Grace and he says, you know, that, grand, uh, that son of yours has a wonderful imagination. He's gonna be heard from someday. If he uses it right, he'll be famous. Otherwise, I'll be in jail. So I think <laughs> grandfather's, you know, and, and grandfather's raising him. And sometimes I think grandfather had a wonderful sense of humor. I know he's a storyteller. That's a great story. I like how he just appropriated it Gonna for himself. He's like, oh, I stopped the horse. <laughs> and and you know, I'm five years old. Yeah, that's yeah. Six. Yeah. I'm an actual six-year-old. Uh, Amazing.
it's clear that uh, Hemingway at the time was considered a, a modern writer, and he you were saying he invented the, the modern novel, but, but in today's world, mm-hmm. why is Hemingway still relevant? Why should we read his stories and, and study his life? Um, it, it's interesting because if, if, you, <laughs> if you want to read what other people think, they have never had a year since Hemingway died without a new biography coming out. And this year, there's like three new biographies coming out. And Hemingway shows up um, in comic books in Europe. And I mean, and he shows up, you know, on, on Jeopardy. And I mean, the man is just, he's ubiquitous. He's everywhere. Why do you think but, that is? Well, one scholar said, well, first Hemingway taught us how to live, and then he taught us how to die. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, his themes of love and loss are, well, Universal, they're not going to change. You know, a hundred years from now, there'll still be love and there'll still be loss. Paris was Hemingway's home when he went there with his first wife, and um, he loved Paris. Of course, he left it during the rainy season and went skiing in Austria and that sort of thing. But I mean, Paris was his home and he really loved it. And so when he was older and he got a bunch of papers back from what he'd left in, in Paris, he wrote a, a book called The Movable Feast. And in that book, he talks about walking down the streets in Paris and seeing the guy roasting chestnuts or smelling the whatever when you go past a store and, you know, seeing the street lamps in a certain way where maybe there's a rainbow type effect or something. And um, there was a terrorist attack in Paris, let's say two years ago, something like that, where they killed a bunch of people. And everybody was running out and buying a movable feast because they could see Hemingway's love of Paris when he's walking the streets and it made him feel good about their city again. I mean, it's just mm. amazing that a man who's been dead 50 years is the one you look to to bring up your spirits by reading about how he felt about Paris. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, that's really a talent to rally the spirits of people so, like, uh, you know, a half century removed from uh, when you were writing. Mm-hmm. Hemingway um, also is bigger than life. I don't know how he did that because he was—he was a really—he was—he was just an ordinary kid in high school that couldn't quite make the football team. Okay, <laughs> okay, and he goes to Paris, and um, you know he's the the best hunter, the best fisherman. He's a wonderful boxer, and he's big and strong, and and. Um, and so people all over the world try and emulate Hemingway as this macho man. And then you get to know him, and he's tender and kind and shy. And I thought, how can he be <laughs> projecting this image, you know, on, on the car? Well, okay, here's another story. Um, Connie said, and I believe her, Hemingway is probably one of the very few people that has appeared on the cover of every major magazine in the world. Do you think Which, people see in Hemingway what they're what they're looking for? Apparently, like, a lot of young men do. Mm-hmm. Um, now, women, I don't know what they saw, but you can see <laughs> he was extremely handsome, um, extremely generous. I suppose that would be very attractive to women. Both those mm-hmm. qualities. I don't. I really don't know um, mm-hmm. because he also had his problem with women in the sense that um, if you look through his life, he was always looking for another woman. Mm. It seems kind of weird mm-hmm. that um, he had. 
four of the four of the greatest women of yeah. his, of his uh, century. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, every one of his wives was terrific, talented uh, person, and yet he would leave them for the next one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it it makes you wonder if if it's uh, that he thought some people say he was leaving them before they would leave him. But like, mm. for instance, his first wife, Hadley, never would have left him. Mm-hmm. And long after he was dead, she would say, oh, Ernie and I never stopped loving each other. We just mm. couldn't live together. Yeah. You know, and I thought, what a, what a kind thing to say for a man that left you for another woman. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. But she was true. She still loved him. I had the opportunity, listeners, to go on Bob's tour, which is initially how um, I kind of heard about Hemingway House and got the inspiration for this episode. Um, so when can people come get tours? You can take a tour any Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So there's five out of seven. Not mm-hmm. bad. And every day we're, we give a tour on the hour at 1, 2, 3, and 4 o'clock. But on Saturday we give you three more shots and you can start as early as 10. So you got 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4. Great. Um, and then I think tickets are $15 for adults? It's only $15. And then we give you some fairly decent discounts. If you are an active student going to school, mm-hmm. it's $2 off. And if you're a senior, meaning 65 years and one day or older type thing, <laughs> um, you get $2 off. So it's $13 tickets. And if you have 10 friends, say, mm-hmm. you can call up and schedule a group tour. And I don't know what that is. It's maybe $12 a piece, I think. Okay. Get it listeners, tour. let us know if you want to take a group tour with us. Field trip. <laughs> We're coming, coming to, field trip. to the Hemingway Birthplace House and a date That'd be great. very near the future. <laughs> Thanks for promising that, John. No problem. You can contact John if you're interested in that. Um, amazing. So then any last stories or advice or kind of something for us to close with from you, um, from Ernest? Ernest lived life to the fullest and he's always doing things. And whenever you would see him, he wanted to teach you to, you know, he wanted you to do things to the fullest too. And um, there was a man in the Depression who read a a short story that Ernest wrote and said, oh my gosh, he's the best writer in America. And he jumped on a freight train in those days. You could ride a train for free if you got an empty boxcar. And the train (laughs) went all the way down to Key West. And when he got there, um, he knocked on Hemingway's door, and, and fortunately for him, he came in the afternoon because Hemingway wrote in the morning. So Hemingway says, well, okay, come on back tomorrow, and I'll, I'll you know, talk to you about learning to ride. And he drove him downtown and offered him 10 bucks if he needed money for food. And I thought, well, that's pretty generous, and he's never seen this man. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and the next day he showed up, and he said, well, I can't teach you to write in a day or a week. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just hire you and you can help Mary, you know, remodel the kitchen. So he turned out to be a mediocre carpenter. But Hemway kept him on and and then they would teach him literature. And then Ernie got his boat, uh, the uh, Pilar, which he always Mm -hmm. loved because it was specially made for him to deep sea fish. And so he had this, Arnold Samuelson's the guy that showed up. He had him sleep on the boat. So he had a free security guard by, you know, he was a student on the boat. And then they went fishing off Cuba and he turned out to be a mediocre fisherman. But um, Hemingway, nevertheless, spent almost a year teaching him to write. And I thought, isn't that just totally generous? You show up. Mm -hmm. And he did that sort of thing with people all the time. So anyway, I just think, you know, Hemingway was just an amazing man in so many ways. And I think it's really tragic that um, because of the frequent accidents he was in and because of the depression that ran in the Hemingway family, um, he got to the point where his body and his mind were just really really difficult to live with and he still tried to write and when he said my writing just isn't working he decided it was time to end his life 
because yeah. I think he just loved life so much. You know, if it couldn't be, <laughs> if it couldn't yeah. be, you know, to the fullest. Yeah, to the fullest. Why bother to stay? Well, if he couldn't write, is the word he used, but it's the same idea. You know, mm -hmm. if it isn't getting everything out of life, you might as well not be here. So, <clears throat> so I've changed my mind and I forgave him for killing himself because mm -hmm. I totally understand it. And I think if I had as many accents as he had, I wouldn't have made it to 62. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Amazing legacy. Well, thank you, Bob, really, for sharing all of this. It's been so wonderful to hear from somebody who has the depth of knowledge that you do. Um, and not only that, but I think is reflective of Ernest's spirit in sharing it with, with the rest of us. So thank you so much for this. Um, and we look forward to hopefully getting more folks in the door and on your tours to hear about Hemingway himself. So thank you. Well, that would be really nice. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, folks. We hope you enjoyed this sort of special bonus content interview. Um, we passed our 1,000 streams mark earlier Woo! this week, which is really cool and exciting, and we couldn't do it without you. So thank you so much for sharing our podcast with your friends, um, forcing it upon your family members. Yes. AKA, thanks, Mom, um, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> And um, we're really looking forward to heading out on continuing our tour in Provincetown um, and would love to get your feedback in any way you see fit to share it with us. So thanks for your support and for, as always, keeping it lit.